Well, Providence is so good to see you this morning. I hope that you've had a good week, a start of the new month, and um, I, um, I'm just so grateful um, for, for each of you. Uh, it seems like every day I um, hear another story of just how God's at work uh, in your lives, uh, and, um, and this is no different. I'm just, uh, just amazed that God is, is, is so uh, active in your life and how, uh, and how you believe Him, and as a result of that, you respond in faith, and that faith uh, yields fruit for his glory, for your good, and for the good of many people around you. And so um, those of you who call Providence um, home, I uh, just want you to know that I'm grateful for you. It's great to see you. And if you're a guest uh, here with us, uh, we're really, really uh, thrilled that you are here also. Uh, if you're at home and live stream or uh, a lot of other venues, uh, welcome um, to you as well. Um, so three weeks until Christmas, right? It's amazing. Just three weeks. And what I want to uh, urge you to do... Um, is, uh, is to be careful with the season. Uh, I want to ask you to be intentional to try uh, to prepare your heart to avoid the risk that's, that's all too common, and that is to wake up on the morning of Christmas uh, feeling distant from the Lord and empty uh, in, your, uh, in your heart. Um, there's, there's, there's so many things that you can do during Advent season. All right? There's a lot of us that hang lights and wreaths and there's parties and there's food and there's movies and there's all kinds of things that are fun in this season. Um, but there is nothing that you need more than to spend time with God himself. Okay. Not just with your church and not just with your parties, but with God himself. Uh, it is so critical that that take place. And the fact is, is, is that Christmas and its truth is just simply too good to wake up on Christmas morning far from God. It's too good to be emotionally empty and to be bored with how you spend Advent. Like the angel came to the earth, to Joseph, and said to him, you shall call his name Jesus. And then he tells him why. He says, for, because he will save his people from their sins. This is, this is his job description. You see, there's a lot of kids in the room, which is awesome. It's, there's some young kids, there's some babies, and and all of us spend time thinking of how we're going to name our kid, right? And, and so we think about family names and meanings of names and names that we definitely don't want to use and might want to use. But none of us actually think through names that are synonymous with their life purpose. And it's because we're not sovereign. We don't know what their life purpose is. But God is sovereign. And so when he said, this is my son and this is his name, he chose a name that's synonymous with his life purpose. And so the name Jesus means what? Savior. He will save his people from their sins. And so for you and for me, for those of us who know Christ as our Savior and Lord, there is reason to rejoice in this season. And there is also reason to wrestle our distracted hearts to the ground and force them to focus and look upon the cradle of Jesus Christ until that heart of yours wants to sing. And wants to celebrate and wants to rejoice. And so if you have a tool to help you prepare your heart, I want to encourage you to use it. Right? If you found one, you're like, this is the one every year that it just, it just stirs my heart, use that tool. If you don't have one, uh, last year uh, wrote one and it looks just like this. It's at back of the next steps. And if you don't know much about Providence and you're not certain, gosh, he's hawking a book. It's free. You just go take one. Okay, They're right in the back. Uh, and this may be able to help you to prepare your heart. It's just a daily exposure to something that's true about Jesus coming uh, for you and for me. And so um, I would um, invite you to 
look at that. Next week, we will start a series, Making Room, for three weeks. But what we want to do right now is to look back uh, the third chapter of Ephesians. And so if you brought a Bible, if you want to head there, uh, this, this is going to be verses 14 to 21, the end of the chapter, uh, the end of sort of the first act. The whole book is broken down into two big pieces. Chapter 1 to 3 is God's grace unleashed to us, what he's doing directly to us. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, which will uh, start in the new year uh, focuses on God's grace that's unleashed through us. And so he's going to look at how God inside of us, Jesus dwelling within us, transforms how we live our life, how we treat people, how we, how we love people, how we do marriage, how we do parenting, how we do finances, how we, how we use our tongue, everything about us. And so it's just an amazing thing. And so what we want to do is finish up the third chapter this morning. And so if you brought a Bible, Ephesians 3, if you didn't, there's a lot of Bibles near you in those chairs. And if you don't have one at home, you can take that home. So as we get ready to read, if you would, bow your head with me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper that we get to enjoy in a few moments. And pray that you would use your word to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Would you help us to see not only the gifts that are ours in Christ that we don't take um, real advantage of so frequently. But God, would you also help us to have the courage and the hope to know that they're available and to draw near to you. And so God, we as a congregation, we turn our focus towards you. We look Godward. We look to you, to your throne, to your word, and ask that you would speak to us through weakness for your glory and our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before I read these verses, I want to tell you as best as I can in a real life sort of, you know, um, uh, it's not a true story. It's a fake story, but of sort of what he's doing here. Okay, so just imagine that you have a 16 year old son. I'm not saying that this is a wise thing to do. Okay, but let's just say you have a 16 year old son and you want to buy him a sports car for Christmas. Okay, and so and 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 it's a really sweet car. In fact, it maybe looks something like this. You have a bed, this big red bow and you drive it up into the driveway Christmas Eve. You can't wait for him to wake up in the morning. He wakes up in the morning. He's absolutely ecstatic. And he says, we've got to go for a drive right now. So he gets in the driver's seat. You're in the other seat. And, um, and you start driving. And, and, and crazy thing is, is he refuses to shift gears. He's just stuck in first gear. And, and, and so there you are, right? Like he turns on 540 and you're going 35 in first gear. Or it's whirling the engine. And, and so you start pleading with him. He's like, son, literally, you, you, have, to, you have to change the gears. This engine's going to burn up. There's so much available that's here. And he simply won't do it. And so you beg him. You say, would you at least just go to the side of the road? Just, just stop for a second. And then you pull out your phone and you go, look, here's a video of someone shifting gears. This is what it looks like. This is what this car can do. And he says, no, I don't want to do that. Then you get the little manual out and you say, look, there's five gears. You see, there's five different ones that you can actually shift. He goes, no, I don't want to do that. Well, that thing that you got your hand on, that's not a hand rest. Okay, that, that is, that's the stick. And it has to move for this car to be able, for you to be able to enjoy what this car can actually do. Finally, you're at wit's end. You don't know what to do. And so you look Godward and you say, God, would you please help my son to see what is available 
in this car that he doesn't see, that he doesn't know, and therefore he cannot enjoy because he cannot experience. I realize that's a silly illustration, but it's exactly what Paul is praying in Ephesians 3. Now, he does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. If you remember going back, he starts chapter 1 and he says, look, God has blessed us in the heavenly places with all of these spiritual blessings. And then he lays out 14 verses of things that God has just literally given us. And then in verse 15, he uses these words, for this reason. And he says, I bow on my knees. And then what he prays at the end of chapter 1 is that all of these blessings that are ours in Christ, that we wouldn't leave them on the table, that we would literally take advantage of all the blessings and enjoy them and use them. Because by using them is that we grow in our faith in Christ. Well, then what he does is he recycles that same theme. He starts in chapter 2 and he starts saying that you and I, we were all dead in our sins. That we were all slaves to sins. It says that we were all following temptation from Satan and we were all objects of wrath. And God made us alive. He, He transformed us. He opened up our eyes. He helped us to see that Jesus accomplished what we're trying to accomplish. And that is meriting some favor with God. And we can't do it. But he did it and he did it on our behalf. And he says, not only that, but that when you trust him is that he forms this family. And this family is very diverse. And so what he starts talking about in chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 is what is available to us in the church. It culminates in chapter 3, verse 10, where he says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to everybody in heaven, on earth, and in hell. And what he knows, though, is that they're not experiencing all of this. Paul knows that Christ lives in them as a congregation, as a body. And that because of that, there is untold potential inside of them to transform how they worship and how they witness and how they grow in Christ and how they relate to their spouse and how they parent and how they they love one another and practice relationships. And yet, Paul knows they're stuck in first gear. That they're leaving most of the engine untouched. It's all there for us, he says. But so many people simply don't experience it. And so what happens is we overheat. And we miss out on so many blessings that are available to us in Christ. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt, honestly, like you just can't tap into the power that you hear is available to you in Christ? That, 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 that people like me, we stand up and we say, this is what's available. And then you look at your life and you think, I, what I hear is available. And what I even read in the scriptures that's available. And what I'm experiencing on Monday morning at 8.30 in the morning is just two totally different things. The fact is, is that we all do. And so Paul prays similarly to what he does in chapter 1. And he uses the first three words the same. Look what it says. For this reason. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what we find here is Paul is simply praying that we would tap in to what has already been given to us. And I want to show you three things that have been given to you. The first is this, is that Christ gives us remarkable freedom to draw near to him. He gives us remarkable freedom to draw near to him. Literally at any time of the day, as many times as you want. He says in verse 14 and 15, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now think about what's happening here. Paul is in prison in Rome, here on the earth, and God is in heaven. So Paul's in prison, God is in heaven, but when Paul prayed, the gap was removed. He was immediately in the presence of God, and so it is with us. Listen, friends, our prayers can go where we cannot go, at least not yet. Our prayers can travel, they can be in the presence of God, even though you are on the earth and he is in heaven. Your prayers can get there. I just love that here he is. We don't know exactly the kind of prison that he was in. But one of the kinds of prisons, if you think about just like, like we think of prison and we think, did Paul get TV or did he not get TV? Did he have a nice couch in his prison room or did he not? Have? Like, like we start thinking these, these sorts of things. Let me tell you about at least one of the kinds of prisons in Rome that We don't know for certain if he was in, but it's a possibility. And that is that they would dig a really deep hole and they would put a series of cages, one on top of another. There was no bathrooms. They would put multiple prisoners, one on top of another. Okay, so this was a disgusting place. There was no carpet. There was no flooring. There was, there was, there was bars. There was, it was, it was, it was just steel. It was cold. It's drafty. It smelled horrible. And here Paul is. You think about that kind of environment, and then you think of the heavens. You think of the throne room of God and all of its luxury and all of its power. And Paul is able, literally, to get there in an instant. No priest, no formality, just Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus died, he invited all who believe in him that we could come through the veil and come right into the presence of the Father. This is what Hebrews 10 says. He goes, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You see, similar to the joy that you feel when your kids really enjoy a gift that you worked really hard to provide for them, so Jesus takes delight when we enjoy the gift of prayer that he worked so hard to provide. You see, when you receive a gift, how you respond to that gift not only communicates something about what you think about that gift, it also communicates what you think about the person's work in order to secure that gift for you. In other words, when we come to the Father and we pray to him, we're not honoring Jesus' gift, we're also honoring Jesus' sacrifice to provide us that gift. And what does it say then for us to go through the course of days without praying at all? What does it say about our appreciation of the gift or the work that it it took to actually obtain that gift for us? 
he says that he falls on his knees. I bow my knees. You think about Paul at this time of his life, his joints and knees, they were beat repeatedly. They were bruised. They were stiff. They were old. And it says that he, there in his cage, there in his prison cell, whatever it looked like, he knelt to pray. Now, you know, in the Bible, most of the people who pray, they're actually standing up, not even sitting down. You can pray standing up, sitting down, kneeling, doesn't matter. God hears you when you pray. You don't even have to use words. You can use thoughts because he knows your thoughts. It's it's looking Godward with our heart, with our attention. But there is something that every now and then I think it's healthy to kneel. You see, kneel is a sign of surrender. You think of a fugitive that's running from the authorities and just before they're caught, when he knows he's caught, what does he do? He gets on his knees. If he doesn't get on his knees, what do they tell him to do before they approach him? Get on your knees. Why? Because it's a sign of surrender. And so here Paul is in prison. And both his words and his posture communicates a burden on his heart for this church in Ephesus. And he's saying, God, I know it's available to them, but they're stuck. I can't communicate it clearly enough for them to to actually live out what you've made available. And so I'm just pleading for you. Would you help them to see? You see, Paul couldn't get to Ephesus, and so he brought Ephesus to heaven. Think about that for a second in your own life. You may not be able to get inside the brain of your kid, but you can get your kid to heaven. You may not be able to understand and get to your spouse, but you can take your spouse in your prayers to heaven and say, God, I need your help. And so, Providence, let's honor the giver and give ourselves to pray. This has got to be the application. If this is available to us, then how do we not pray? And friends, your prayers don't have to be long. They don't have to be short. And they don't have to be groomed or dressed up like this poor poodle. Look at this poodle. Yeah, I know you say aw, right? But that's disgusting right there, okay? Um, Let me just tell you. Okay, this poodle right here is literally saying, why did you do this to me? That's not a happy poodle. Look at it. And listen to me. Sometimes our prayers, we try to dress them up and we groom them and we comb them. And our prayers come to us and they say, why did you do this to me? This isn't necessary. It's not even that attractive. You see, whenever prayer begins to feel complicated in your life, something's amiss. And the thing that's amiss is more times than not, as we have forgotten, that God is a loving Father who loves to hear the sound of your voice. God is like a dad who gets home from work and beams when he hears the little footsteps of his kids running to the door. And so I would urge you to pray. And among the many things that you can be praying about, I want to encourage you to pray for your church. Did you notice what he says? He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's already told us that the church is the household, the family of God. And he's writing to the churches in Ephesus. 
And so certainly one of the things that we should be praying for is just like Paul. He's praying for the church and we would want to emulate and pray for the church. You see, I would encourage you to pray for the people. I would encourage you to pray for the hurting among us. I would encourage you to pray for our missionaries. I would encourage you to pray for our pastors. I would encourage you to pray for the vision that's set before us, that we would be a people of faith that would, that would seek to plant plant our lives in the church and to plant the gospel in our city and to plant churches in the world. It needs prayer. It's available for us, but we have to pray. You see, we're a family. We're not a business. Oh, sure, we have budgets and expenses and revenue, just like every family. But how many of you pray for your grocery store? How many of you go in and say, God, would you just help the staff at this grocery store to be able to complete their vision of supplying for us tasty foods and, and snacks and, and God, help the vegetables and stay fresh. We don't do that. Why? Because the, our grocery store, the businesses that we frequent, they're not family. But what he says here is this, is that the church is a family that's held together by a father who loves that family deeply. And family members pray for other family members. Right? And so God, Christ has given us a remarkable freedom to draw near to God. And so I would encourage us to do that. Second thing we see is that Christ gives us remarkable strength to know more of him. He gives us remarkable strength to know more of him. Now, sometimes Paul gets wordy, but if you can break down the words and see where he's going, it'll really, really help you. But notice what he says. He goes, this is my request that I've been praying in this prison cell on your behalf. He says, I'm praying that according to the riches of God's glory, that he would grant you to be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm praying that God would take an ounce of his unlimited power and strength, and that he would use that power to recharge your heart, the core of who you are, your ticker. That everything where where all your desires, all your motives, all your inclinations flow out of that thing, I'm asking that God would take an ounce of his power and fill that thing and supply that thing so that you would be full. Now, why? What is Paul hoping for? Now, if you have an ESV Bible, what you can see, I have them circled, right? Because it helps me to see the flow. Paul is, has a lawyer's mind. And so he's making an argument where he uses one sentence and then he builds his next sentence on top of that sentence. So this is what he says. He, he starts and he says that, that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he says there's three things if God did that would take place in our life. You can identify these in the text by the words so that or that. So watch them. Okay, watch in verse 7. It says, I'm praying this. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if that happens, what would happen? That, that's the second one, you would be rooted and grounded in love and have strength to comprehend, literally, the breadth and and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And what would happen if we were able to comprehend the love of God? The third that comes in the middle of verse 19. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And so it's like, it's like stairs. He's saying, if, if God, God, if you would literally fill their hearts with strength, I can see three things taking place in their life. The first is so that 
Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, how many of you have ever checked into a hotel, got in there, and you thought, you know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to paint that wall. I've got some, I've got, there's a problem with that paint. I'm going to Home Depot right now. I'm just going to, that's going to help them out. None of us do that. Why? Because it's not home. It's not home. But when you buy a home, you never f- finish fixing it up, right? I remember a few years ago, I'll never forget this. I bought, I found a picture of the Eiffel Tower, which is where I asked my wife, Tabitha, to marry me, okay, on top of it. I saw it and I thought, now that is a really cool picture. So I bought the picture for her. And she loved it. She goes, you know where this should go? This should go in our bedroom. And I all right, sure, wherever you want. Hangs in the bedroom. She looks at it and she goes, you know what, though? Um, I think the bedding needs to change in order to, in, in order to, so we change the bedding. You know what? The curtains in the room now don't quite work out with this. And, and sure enough, starting with that picture, literally, we, we just went through the all upstairs of the house, one thing after another. It was like a cascade, right? It was the most expensive $20 picture I've ever bought in my life. See, when you buy a house, you never stop fixing it. And what Paul is praying for is this, is that the church would see that Jesus is not checking into your life like a hotel. He is coming to make his residence in your heart. And therefore, he never intends to stop fixing. He's not the man that we call in order to fix the mess that we've created. No, he wants to live in our heart. And what happens if Christ is dwelling by faith in our heart? The second thing is that we would comprehend the love of Christ. It's breadth and width and height and length. You see, Jesus begins his renovation project of our heart by helping us grasp first his stunning love for us. Now, I want to show you a really cool picture. It's two typhoons. It's a terrifying picture, but it's two, two, two typhoons. The Philippines is down there somewhere. And these two superstorms, they collided to create the perfect storm. Now, if you can imagine this, you'll be able to imagine the power that can take place when two superstorms collide in your heart. And these are the two storms that Paul wants to talk about. He says, over here, there's this weather front, and it's the power of God. And over here, there's a weather front, and it's the love of God. And when the power of God and the love of God collide in your heart, something amazing happens, and it's the third that. It's that you and I will be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that look like? It looks like you get out of first gear. It looks like you shifting and all of a sudden you're you're now tapping into a resource that that that, that literally opens up vast possibilities of how you can love people, how you can lead people, how you serve people, how you how you find joy and contentment in life. We start experiencing a deeper joy and a deeper contentment and a deeper courage, a deeper love and a deeper wisdom to live life for his glory. And yet, tragically, we as believers keep settling for life 
where the front of our stage is clean and all dressed up where everyone can see it. And yet the back of stage is loaded with apathy and self-absorption and broken relationships. We're abrasive and we're cold and impure and defiled and legalistic and critical. We complain about everything. We're emotionally aloof. Jesus looked at people who were like this, who were spiritual and had the front of the stage all dressed up and pretty like. And yet the back of the stage was just, it was a morgue. And this is what he says to them. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You see, Providence, we're all broken. We all get stuck in first gear. But the fullness of Christ that you read about and through the Gospels, when you see the zest of Jesus' life and the joy and the contentment, the peace and the power and the courage of Jesus, all of that is available to you and to me. We will never experience it perfectly on the earth because we're fallen and the world has fallen, but we can experience it persistently. Not perfectly, but persistently. We get knocked down, we pick ourselves back up, we say, God, help me to be reminded of your power and love so that the fullness of Christ, all of the characteristics of Christ can be seen in my life. And so two applications here. First is if you don't know Christ, let's trust Christ and experience life anew. Listen to me. I know that you think by working harder, you're going to figure it out. I, I, I tried that for 16 years. What I can tell you is this, is that it is not found in humanity, the solutions for our soul. It is not found within humanity, the solution for your joy or your contentment. The solution for your marriage is not found in the works of your hands. You need a deeper source and that source is available to you. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He died on a cross in order to pay the price for our sin. He was buried in a grave and he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he says, if you'll trust me, I will take away your sin. I'll give you my righteousness. I'll also place my spirit within you that will give you resources to live a totally different kind of life than you've ever known thus far. You know, you can do that today before you leave. You can trust Christ. You simply do that by looking Godward. You say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in his accomplishments. And I want to rest on those accomplishments, not on mine. I confess him as my Lord. And the Bible says that he will save you from your sin. Confessing him as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He says, you will be saved. That's available to you. And then for those of us who are in Christ, the second application would be this, is let's ask God to strengthen us to experience more of him. It's available. But we have to be praying for it and pleading for it. You see, when God's weather front of his power and the weather front of his love collide in our heart, you see, the healing of Christ can be seen in our brokenness. The love of Christ can be seen in our care. The humility of Christ can be seen within our serving other people. The generosity of Christ can be seen in our giving. The mercy of Christ can be seen in how we forgive other people. The passion of Christ for people can be seen in our sharing the gospel with others. And the worth of Christ can be seen in our worshiping. It's all available. You know why? Because John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. 
He grafts you in and all of a sudden all the resources of his spirit come bursting through and you're able to then bear fruit that's different than you can bear alone. You see, Providence, we are not bound to first gear. We're not. Fifth gear is really fun. And most believers never get close to it. But we can. We can be filled with the fullness of Christ. When he reveals something to you, you repent. When you repent, he fills you with courage to be obedient. All of a sudden you see fruit in your life and then it starts over again. He reveals something else. So let's ask God to strengthen us to experience more of him. The third thing I want you to see before we take the Lord's Supper, last thing is this, is that Christ gives us remarkable promises to glorify him. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Providence, we simply cannot imagine what God might do in us as a church body for his glory and for the good of our city if we would venture more on his power than our calculations. You see, Paul is inviting us here in verse 20 to consider God's power as part of our equations. That's something that we never consider. We, 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 we make equations. Okay, A plus B equals C. Okay, if I work really hard, if this happens, if we give and we build this worship center, then this might happen. What God is saying here is this. He's literally giving us the green light to venture, to literally trust, to, to, to step out in faith and consider his power that's not available to us as part of that equation. And this is why we can do great things. This is why people go overseas as career missionaries. Why do they do that? Because they're considering the power of God in the equation. This is, this, is, this is why marriages can be reconciled. This is why we can, in faith, say, you know what? I am going to make those cookies, and I'm going to go to every single neighborhood this Christmas, to every one of my neighbors, and I'm going to venture on the power of God. He might do more than I can even ask him to do or can even think of what he might do. It's available to us, providence. And the reason we can do this is because it says that he wants to glorify his son through his church. In verse 10, he says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be seen. Through us. See, just as the sun reflects off the water, God wants the glory of his son to reflect off his church. In other words, he wants us to show the world the difference Jesus can make when we shift from first gear to second gear. This is why he says to him be glory in the church in Jesus Christ forevermore. So application, let's settle. And I use the word daily because we get distracted daily. So let's settle daily the issue of who we are going to glorify. You see, Once the issue of glory is settled, most issues in our life, they don't become easy, but they become simple. 
This is why Jesus said, hallowed be your name. This is what we should pray. God, that may your name be glorified. See, the challenge that we all have is that our old nature is by nature a glory thief. God is here, the people are here, and we want to stand in the sight line between people and God. We want our preferences to be known. We want to be praised. We want to beat our chest. Every single one of us. And as a result of that, there's always a glory crisis. Whose glory is going to be received at this point in time? Who is going to get the glory? What's so sad is that when we chose our way, it's strangely toxic toxic to our joy and to our relationships. Have you ever noticed that celebrity doesn't fit well with humanity? You know why? Because standing in the sight line between God and his people is toxic to our joy. It's not supposed to be that way. We're created for his glory. You see... If we'll ask this question, what will glorify God in this situation? We will arrive at a very different answer to most of the questions that we ask in our life, but it'll always be the right answer. What do I mean by this? Let's just say that you have a little friction with your spouse, and they're in this room, and you're in this room, and someone has to bend. Usually the question is, I I shouldn't have to do that. Why? Because it's my preference. Maybe you're even right. But let me ask you something. What would glorify God? God cares more about us being reconciled than us being right. Once the glory issue is settled, life becomes not easy, but it becomes simple. This is the right thing to do. This is what would glorify the Lord. So let's settle that issue of who we're going to glorify. You know, Providence, God has given us a reminder to reorient our distracted minds, and it's the Lord's Supper. So I want to ask those that will be serving us, if you want to head back to the back and get ready. So grateful for our deacons that serve us in this way. Jesus told us to take this bread and cup as a reminder of the cross and as a confession of our own faith. Now listen to me. We take this every single month, and when we do, we are reminded of three things, at least three. One is that Jesus is our priest, so we can come to him at any time. One is that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches, that we're dependent upon him. And the third is that Jesus is the hero. Not a single one of us can look at that table right there and conclude that we are the hero of humanity. (laughs) Jesus is the hero. And so we do this monthly in order to remember these things, that we're dependent upon him, that we want to glorify him, that he is our priest who's brought us close. So if you've not yet trusted Christ, we would ask you just humbly to let these things pass. We would love to talk with you after the service about trusting Christ. But if you know Christ, we welcome you to this table. I'm going to pray, and after we do, it's going to be served. And as it's served, I would encourage you to confess your sin. And then just to listen to Ephesians 3 be read over us. Okay? So let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for what you've made available. And pray, God. That even as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would use this to remind us of your power that's available to us to live a new kind of life. Would you search our heart and test us, see if there's any offensive way in us, and help us to confess that our conscience would be clean. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.